Let's pray. Oh, God. So we begin a little springtime journey now that the campus is a whole lot quieter. And we think about this grand institution we call church. Big times for our little community of faith coming up in Texas. And so, what does it mean to be church at a time like this? So examine the metaphors, some unusual metaphors. Teach us and equip us to be the kind of church you need right now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, here's a question for you Would you make a good president of the United States? Huh? I know how little Celeste Bazor answered that question because just a couple months ago, her teacher in that little seventh grade, uh, sorry, second grade, second grade class down the road, not Ruth Murdoch, down the road, handed out this piece of paper and all of Celeste and her little classmates filled the piece of paper out. Now, Celeste happens to be the granddaughter of our own Carolyn and Stan Strzikowski. And Grandma Carolyn gave me this, so I'm, I'm passing it on to you. It says, so, so it says right there at the top, you see that? I am president. And then they would draw, each child drew in her or his face over the American flag. And then you had to, you had to fill out the question, I would make a good president because. So here's Celeste. Celeste's response, I would make a good president because I am a good leader. Hallelujah. That's a lot of chutzpah for a second grader, huh? And like a true politician, she has a three-plank platform. She's running for office. First, okay, here's the first plank. First, I am an excellent problem solver. I tell you what, if you're in the second grade and you can write the two words problem solver, you go. You can do it. I am an excellent problem solver. I can solve problems real fast. That's what we need in Washington, ladies and gentlemen, a class that can do it real fast. This slow stuff just doesn't cut it. All right, that's, that's, that's number one. Number two, next, big childlike scrawl here. Next, I am real kind to kids. If there's anything the world needs more, couldn't be more than this, somebody that really has a heart for kids. Okay, but Celeste, can you prove that you're really kind to kids? Yes, I can. She says, if someone has a cut, I will ask a teacher for a Band-Aid. <sighs> Man, that's federal government involvement. All right, one more. Finally, little Celeste, second grader, just down the road here in Barron County. Why? I would make a good president. Finally, I am so brave. Whoa. Prove it. Oh, she says. I swam in the sea with a whale. W-A-L-E. <laughs> I don't know if it's Dana whale or Scott whale, but she swam in the sea with a whale. That is why I would make a good president. Celeste Bazor, February of this year. You go, girl. How old are you in the second grade, by the way? About seven or eight? Seven or eight? How old do you have to be in America? To, can you run at 18 or do you have to wait to 21 to be a president in America? Oh, what, what is it? We don't know? It's not 35. Oh, Dwight, just read the Constitution, will you? 35? I can't wait that long for her. 
I'm hanging on to this just in case she decides. So would you make a good president? We know Celeste's answer. And thanks to this week, we know Ben Carson's answer. That's right, our own Dr. Ben Carson. Unless you slept it this week, you know, don't you? The world-famous pediatric neurosurgeon, conjoined twins of the head, successfully separated Ben Carson. Active Seventh-day Adventist member, local church elder, Sabbath school teacher. And now he's thrown his hat in the ring to run for the nation's highest office. Wow. <laughs> hmm. And I, I tell you what, I wish him well. As far as I know, and somebody could prove me wrong, but I believe he's the first Seventh-day Adventist to run for this high an office, elected office. Don't you suppose? Now, I need to say this. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has a long-standing position of not supporting or endorsing or opposing any candidate for elected office, which means you're not going to get a set of directions how to vote, not from denominational headquarters or from your friendly local pastor. You'll have to decide on your own. But as I wrote in my blog today, don't read it now, as I wrote in my blog today, you know what? Paul says there, what is it, 1 Timothy 2, pray for your kings and presidents. We ought to pray for all our political leaders. And anybody who wants this job, which would include Dr. Ben Carson. In fact, we ought to pray for our church leaders as well. We got a big deal happening in just less than two months. A place called San Antonio, Texas. Delegates of the leadership of the Seventh-day Adventist Church globally will come together. 70,000 in the Alamo Dome on the weekends, the two Sabbaths. Wow. And they're going to consider the business of the church, and they're going to elect new leaders because every five years the leaders get elected or re-elected. We need to be praying for that because the church is facing, I don't know if you've heard this, but some major issues. So in the Sabbaths that kind of leading up to uh, Texas, maybe we could take... A moment or two, you and I, and kind of reflect on the meaning of church. Look at some rather unusual metaphors like we do today. Title of the series, Think Local. It's backwards. Think local, act global. We'll talk about why that's backwards another time. Title of today's teaching, what is it? Reversing the polarities of the third millennial church. Let's go. Open your Bible, please, to the little book of First Peter near the end of the New Testament. First Peter. First Peter, chapter 1. Amazing metaphor today. First Peter chapter 1. You didn't bring a Bible? Well, you got all those electronic devices. Don't have those either. Grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It'll be page 814 in that Pew Bible. First Peter, I'm in the NIV, New International. Here we go. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Peter begins with this majestic Trinitarian confession to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then he introduces a metaphor. Can you believe that? To God's elect, the exiles who are scattered through the provinces of the Roman Empire. Have you ever thought of the church as a, as a community of exiles? I mean, we know what exiles are, people who are, people who are not living in the homeland that they long for. 
people who are having to carve out an existence on a foreign shore in a foreign culture, exiles. Have you ever thought of yourself as an exile? A community of faith, not, 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 not geographical exiles, spiritual exiles. Could that be us in the third millennium even? This is not just an isolated uh, line here. Just turn the page to chapter 2. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, Peter's still writing to the church. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, there it is again, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So what's up with this metaphor of exiles? Let's, let's, let's do a little reflecting on it. I got a brand new book. It was, just, just came out this very year. It's written by a Canadian theologian. His name is Lee Beach. Here's the title of the book, The Church in Exile, Living in Hope After Christendom. Got it from Amazon.com. Just, just about through it now. Beach, I'm going to put his words on the screen. And by the way, no study guide today except you have all the quotes on a study guide. You'll want some of these quotations. So that's why I put them on a study guide for you. Nothing to fill in, though. Here we go. Lee Beach. There was a time in his... And by the way, he builds a case which is almost universally uh, embraced now. And you'll see. There was a time in the history of most Western nations when Christianity held court as the de facto religion of the empire, and the church stood at or near the center of political power. In this cultural setting, the church had a significant role to play in the shaping of the culture and the determining of the overarching moral structures of society, end quote. Obviously, those days are long gone. I mean, please, where's the church today? I mean, consider some of the trends. Pew Forum. This is this organization down in Indianapolis to the south of us. They specialize in researching the state of religion and, you know, religious sort of thinking in the nation. They surveyed more than 35,000 Americans, and they found out, get this, this was new to me, by the way, maybe you knew this, but they, find out, they found out based on these numbers that Protestantism is one hair away from becoming a minority in the United States. 51% of the people responding said, I'm Protestant, just a hair away. They also found out when they were asking about your affiliation that the highest number of, the, the fastest growing of the respondents would be those who answer, I'm not affiliated. They call them the nuns, the nuns. Now, here's something you didn't know either. Put it on the screen, Lee Beach. If these trends continue at their current pace, religious nuns, as they are often called, will outnumber Christians by 2042. Outnumber Christians. Look at it. Uh, 51% are Protestant, Catholic, 26, 27%. That's, that's three-quarters of the nation right now is Christian. By 2042, that number will drop significantly and nuns will outnumber. <laughs> hey, factor in Islam growing in this nation, and it is growing. Factor in the young leaving the community of faith in disturbing numbers. Guess what we have? Welcome Western Europe. That's what we got. We are on the way to becoming Western Europe. England, United Kingdom, France. Germany, Italy. Wow. Beach. Put him on the screen again. Christianity has been gradually losing its status as the lingua, lingua franca, the, the dominant language in Western culture for some time and has increasingly tended to become a local language used only by those who are professing Christians, not understood by others, this language. <laughs> what are you speaking? 
As we enter into the 21st century and the dust from the cultural upheaval of the previous century begins to clear, it is apparent that the church no longer functions at or near the center of things anymore. The church must now function within a framework that precludes any kind of cultural authority. Guess what? As it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be. At the end, it's the same. We're exiles again. Just like with the church at the beginning, it's returned. Pagan world around us. And we're outgunned, outnumbered, and oftentimes outmaneuvered. Exiles. Oh, Peter's on to something. Oh, Dwight, does that mean, does that mean that this is an hour for great despair in the church and we have no hope for the future? Are you kidding? It's the exact opposite. Incredible hope. In fact, think about the exile long ago because Peter is obviously talking about the exile of Israel by Babylon. In fact, watch this. Go to the next to the last line in the book. So that would be chapter 5, verse 13. She who is in Babylon sends greetings to you. What's Babylon? It's code language for Rome. She sends greetings to you. So Peter is clearly thinking about the exile where the Jews were taken by Nebuchadnezzar into exile. You know, you, you, you know the, the Old Testament story. And as it was in Babylon, it will now have to be for the church in the third millennium. In this very time that you and I live, the exiles had one choice. Penetrate that society that you've been taken to or die. If you cloister into this little walled-in community, one by one, they're leaving the young, one by one, eventually we will bury the last member and it's over. Adios. The exiles had one choice, to survive Move in. Move in. Jeremiah 29, pray for the success of the land to where you are now in exile. Move into your culture. Establish a new beachhead for the kingdom. Same thing for the church today. Exiles all over again in a sea of paganism. We have no choice, which means there are two critical. Here we go. Two critical implications. I need you to really do some thinking now because when the thinking's over, I'm out of here. All right, two critical implications that we need to consider for the Seventh-day Adventist Church on the eve of the upcoming general conference session, all right? I'm going to run these two by you. Implication number one, think about this with me. We must find new ways to engage and penetrate the culture and world in which we are now exiled. I repeat, to remain cloistered away from this pagan world both belies and betrays the world into which we are exiled. We are here for a reason. Permeate the world for me, the Lord Jesus says. It's death otherwise. We have no option. We have to penetrate. I mean, take the, take the two famous exiles. You know them both. Daniel and Esther. If Daniel and Esther had not, in their own very unique and differing way, methods, if they had not penetrated culture, the story we have today, the exile in the Old Testament, bad. We may not even be here. I want you to think about those two exiles. Daniel. Daniel penetrated the Babylonian culture. You know how he did it? By remaining as true blue as is humanly possible to the mores and morals of his childhood. Unshakable obedience to God. And by that radical obedience, Daniel penetrated the highest court in the empire. And Nebuchadnezzar gets saved as a result of that stalwart young man. Now, 
Esther, completely different. A little longer down the road now. Esther, what does she do? She embraces the culture in which she is in exile. She has no choice. And what does she become? She becomes, how did, how, how did Lee Beach put it? She becomes the trophy queen. Not a very admirable uh, position that you want to hold in life. It's the, the one that's trotted out. Well, hey, guys, you want, you want to see my latest queen? What do you think? She becomes the trophy queen. And she has to, if, if, if uh, we can put it this way, and Beach does, uh, through apparent moral ambiguity, she has to make terms with this alternate strategy. Let me tell you something. For a young Jewish girl to have to go through in the king's harem, what she had to go through certainly offended her personal choices, did it not? And yet she becomes strategic. See, we don't talk about that. She becomes strategic in God's method to save the race of the faithful from annihilation from, at the hands of Haman. Two radically different methodologies, but the same God, the same blessing, and the same success. Isn't that amazing? Apparently, you don't have to have the same method when you seek to achieve the same mission. I want to hang on to that thought, which is why in the church of exiles today, we've got to find some new ways to engage and penetrate our culture and our society. If we don't, adios. Will it be uncomfortable? No doubt. Could it be controversial? Quite likely. Will we agree on methods? Probably not. Take in case, case in point, two organizations. One's called GYC and the other's called The One Project. Two organizations within our little community of faith sharing the same mission to penetrate this society, this generation, for the, on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, but two radically different methods. Correct? Yeah. Now, we can compare them as truthfully as comparing Esther and Daniel. Because when we compare Esther and Daniel, guess what we end up with? God can embrace widely differing methods to accomplish the same solitary mission. He's not bound by the methods. The methods do not determine the outcome. He determines the outcome. So we ought to spend less energy hurling from one little side or the other, hurling vindictives on those who don't agree with our particular method. Because let me ask you this question. Let me just put it bluntly to you. Which was more biblical, Esther or Daniel? I guess they both were. Oh, it's true, you can, read the book of Ex you can read the book of Esther and not a single breath of naming God. He's never named in that entire book. But God is omnipresent in every detail of that stunning narrative. Now, you, you'd be, we might be inclined to say, well, it's got to be. Daniel is, is, is more acceptable because he quotes a lot of the Bible in his book. Apparently, both methods, depending on the culture, both methods are successful with the same mission. Apparently, it's okay to not be alike. Now, we have an issue coming up in San Antonio. 
You may have heard. The issue represents two radically different methods to achieve the same mission. Same mission. Two radically different methods. Could it be that like Daniel and Esther, God is not bound in the horns of a dilemma, that He can declare, I'll take both methods and achieve my mission. He's done it before. Let's just put it that way. Implication number one, we must find new ways to engage and penetrate the culture and world in which we are exiled. Implication number two, here's the other one, our modus operandi for doing so must be engaged nonconformity. That's good. Let's go back to Lee Beach. Put them on the screen, please. Exilic holiness. So the holiness of the exiled community. Exil holiness meaning belonging wholly to God. Exilic holiness is fully engaged with culture while not conforming to it. Living as a Christian exile in Western culture calls the church to live its life constructively embedded within society while not being enslaved to all of its norms and culture's ideals. Sometimes holiness has a personal cost and demands taking a stand that draws attention to itself. Case in point, Daniel. Other times, holiness is not defined by dramatic action but by the day-to-day -day choices we make. You know what? Hanging around the young as we do here in this university parish, it's not, it's not unusual for me uh, to run into a young adult here at Andrews University. I've had his face, her face, his face just aglow with, with a love for Christ and a pursuit of holiness. But this young adult kind of seems counterintuitive to uh, the old timers, but this young adult in love with Jesus is very much immersed in a culture through which the young adult is seeking to reach his or her peers. You don't cloister away from the culture to save yourself. The issue is not saving yourself. The issue is saving the world, and you're going to have to go into the world to save it. And you run into these kids. <laughs> I'm so proud of them. Yeah, we've got to find new ways to penetrate and engage the culture and society in which we are exiled. But, now see, here's the caveat. The implication, too, brings the caveat. But we do not have to conform to the pagan culture the pagan world in order to penetrate, reach, leaven, and change that culture. We don't have to conform to it. That's the point. Several years ago, I had my preaching class here at the Theological Seminary read this, this great book by Walter Brueggemann, title of the book, Cadences of Home, Preaching Among Exiles. In the book, he candidly warns about the danger facing exiles today. He's spot on. I want you to see his words on the screen. The metaphor of Babylonian exile will serve well for my urging. The great problem for exiles is cultural assimilation. Just circle those two words, cultural assimilation, in your study guide. The great problem, cultural assimilation. The primary threat to those ancient Jews was that members of the community would decide that Jewishness is too demanding. I'm thinking about Adventists. That Jewishness is too demanding or too dangerous or too costly and simply accept Babylonian definitions and modes of reality. And surely Jews in exile worried, hold on, that their young would see no point in the hassle of being Jewish, no point in the hassle of being an Adventist. Why do I have to go through this, please? 
We ourselves as Christians, Brigham and Ryan, surely know, moreover, about the next generation that too readily decides that discipleship is not worth it. As Jews, last line, disappeared into the woodwork of Babylon, so Christians now, as never before in the West, disappear into the hegemony of secularism, the dominance of secularism, end quote. That was a mouthful. But I hope you got the, his definition of the great problem. It is the great problem our community of faith faces, cultural assimilation. We are exiles. We got that part. But the danger is that the exiles will be assimilated into the Babylonian culture that surrounds the community of faith. We got to penetrate, implication one, implication two, but we don't. Non-conforming engagement. That's what it has to be. Listen, folks, I wanted to say this. And I think you'll agree, the longer we are in exile, the greater will be the numbers of our own who disappear into the hegemony of Babylonian secularism. It's just going to happen. The longer we go, the more we lose. We can't just sit here and die. We have a mission to this pagan world, and we've got to hang on to our kids. That's why we need... Now, please, this is an appeal. We need our best and brightest minds at Andrews University, in the seminary, in undergraduate, I don't care what your discipline is, we need our best and brightest minds in this institution to counsel the church on how we can effectively live and serve as exiles in this disintegrating culture and world. We need the brightest minds we have to help us, because if we don't do something... The third millennial church will have an aging generation. I'm from Japan. They, they are not attracting the young. The young have left the church. They will bury the last Adventist if something doesn't turn it around radically. If we're not careful, in, the, in Western Europe and in the United States and Canada, that's, will be, that's the story we're looking at. Take us a little longer. Oh, we need. If God is speaking to your heart right now and He's saying, Sir, madam, you could really be a help to me. Help us explore how to hang on. Engage nonconformity or nonconforming engagement. Hang, how we can hang on to the young as we journey into the uncharted future that faces us as a global denomination. Let me tell you, here at this university, we struggle. Got Chaplain Jose on the front pew today. We struggled night and day in the effort to find the balance between protecting the community of faith while penetrating the culture for Christ. Peter is dealing with that same balance. Let me read the words one more time to you. Verse 11, dear friends, this is chapter 2, Peter. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Non-conforming engagement, that's what I need from you, he says to the exiled church. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans. You've got to be out there. You've got to be out there. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us when Jesus returns to this planet. Implication number one, Peter's right. We must find new ways to engage and penetrate the culture and the world in which we are exiled. And implication number two, Peter is also right. Our modus operandi for doing so must be engaged nonconformity. Does this make sense? Are you hearing Peter? The two verses immediately preceding. 
But you, verse 9, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, straight out of Exodus 19. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, here it comes. Here it comes. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. That is precisely what a church in exile desperately needs today. We need the outpouring of God's mercy and grace upon this community of faith. The outpouring that comes mediated through Calvary, where the exile died. His heart was in another homeland, but he came to these shores. You know why? Because we have to save them. At any cost, we must save them. And so the exile came, and he lived, and he ministered, and he died and rose again. The exiled Savior for all of us exiled sinners. Wow. We got to do the same. In his name. Let me end with this. Philip Yancey. In this wonderful new book, Vanishing Grace, Whatever Happened to the Good News? He tells of another survey, a survey of Americans asking this question. What, what, words you most are, what are the words you most like to hear? What do you like to hear? And, and not surprisingly, the number one choice of Americans, the words, I love you. Hmm? I love you. The second choice of Americans, I forgive you. Well, those are important words, aren't they? And the third choice, you won't guess the third choice. The third choice of Americans, the most, the most welcome words to ever hear. Choice number three, supper's ready. You think about it when your mom called you. Hey, boys, supper's ready. Come on home. Supper's ready. Yancey writes, masterful as only Yancey can do, put the words on the screen for you. These three statements provide a neat summary of the gospel story. We are loved by God. I love you. We are forgiven by God. I forgive you. And we are invited by God to the banquet table. Supper's ready. Keep reading. In the midst of a planet marked by brokenness, violence, natural disasters, ruptured relationships, the gospel is truly good news. Like an iPod listener dancing in a subway station full of glum commuters. You can picture that, can't you? A Christian hears a different sound of joy and laughter on the other side of pain and death. Supper's ready. Good news for a church in exile. And by the way, good news for a pagan world in exile as well. So my fellow exiles... Since we're not home yet, and since supper's not quite yet ready, I say you and I move out into this dark world and speak the words they are dying to hear. I love you, I forgive you, and supper's ready. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God. Exiled in a world longing to know the gospel, though they don't know what they long for. And so this exiled community of faith, oh, God, forgive us for our cloistering. And through the compelling model of 
Christ Jesus himself. May we leave our comfort zones and our faith homelands and step out onto uncertain shores of a pagan world. It's the only way. It's the only way Jesus penetrates society now. May the church that convenes this summer, may the church that sits here on this campus, may this campus be your strategic plan to reach this pagan world for Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray in His name. Amen.